Hence today, I believe that I am acting in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. By defending myself against the Jew, I am fighting for the work of the Lord. Adolf Hitler wrote those words in his autobiography, Mein Kampf, a manifesto in which he displayed that he believed that he was the anointed of the Lord to go and to carry out the Lord's word in the establishment of the Third Reich. In fact, if you read Mein Kampf, and I'm sure many of you have, what you'll find is that throughout Hitler's autobiography, it is littered with scripture, backing up his claims and backing up what he believed his mission to be. This week I read a story. I read a story about a lady named Sally, and Sally had sought earnestly the Lord for marriage, and she married later in life than, than many of her friends because she didn't want to settle. She wanted to have the Lord's will for her life, and she wanted to find a man that would allow her to grow in the Lord and to be strengthened in the Lord that she could pursue God with. And she met a man by the name of Peter, and meeting Peter, she believed that she had met that man all the way up until the first morning of their honeymoon. The first morning of their honeymoon, Sally woke up and she had slept in a bit late as many people would do on their honeymoon and she was immediately eviscerated by her husband. As time went on, he got harsher and harsher and more and more demanding and they, they had a small child and as they brought the child, he was just as harsh with his, his child as he was with his wife and his wife, Sally, told about how one time that he would become so enraged at her and so frustrated with her that he took the child and threw them across the room. And she began to weep. And as she wept, Peter stood over her and he read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And he told her that every problem in their marriage and every problem in their lives and every problem with their child was the result of her insubordination and her disobedience unto the Lord. The Bible can be used in a lot of ways, many of which are destructive. The Bible can be used in a lot of ways, many of which are destructive. The Bible has been used to justify the Atlantic slave trade. The Bible has been used to make sense of the Crusades. The Bible has been quoted by KKK members as they terrorize people who disagree with them in worldview. And so there is a way in which you can read the Bible, a way in which you can be a student of the Bible, a way in which you can know a lot about the Bible, a way in which you can quote the Bible that totally misses the message and the significance of the Bible. That's the point. And so what we, some have decided among uh, the modern cultures that we need to sanitize the Bible and we need to domesticate the Bible and we need to, to make it cleaner and, and streamline and avoid some of the harder teachings and uh, avoid some of the more offensive subjects. Others have said that the Bible is simply a, a, a marker for us by which we can go and we can see now how far God himself has allowed our culture to advance past the Bible, past the time and the culture and the societies that we read about here. 
But I think that both of those move past what Jesus himself testifies to the truth of the Bible and to the significance of the revelation of God. And I am convinced that if we are to have the hope that we are to have as Christians and we are to live in the joy that we are to live in as Christians and we are to accomplish that which God has left us on earth to accomplish, that we must tether ourselves to the scriptures in the same way that Jesus has tethered himself to the scriptures. That we must come to the Bible, not just to read it, not just to memorize it, not just to know it, not just to inquire of it, but to ask of it, what has God said and what does God mean? What has God said and what does God mean? That is, why did God give us the words that he gave to us and what is he trying to communicate through those words? What is he trying to accomplish through what he has said? What is his desired intention? What is his intended meaning from the beginning? So I think for many of us, over the course of our Christian life, the way that we've come to understand the Bible is the Bible as being a collection of stories. We may even believe that they're true, but we, we kind of view them in the same way that we would view Aesop's fables of all of these good, creative, helpful, well-written stories that have been preserved by, by tradition and from one generation to the next. And the best of those stories would be the stories that we read about Jesus himself. But I'm convinced that if we are to hold true to the scriptures and we are to really understand the scriptures, that the key to understanding the scriptures is to realize that it is one story about one character with many plot twists progressing and moving ever so faithfully toward an ultimate climax in which all of the redeemed will be joined with their redeemer. That if we are to understand the scripture, we must understand the big story. And understanding the big story, see how the smaller stories fit and to see how our story fits. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next however long for the foreseeable future. We're going to start in Genesis and we're going to progressively, systematically make our way all the way to Revelation. And we're going to see the big story, the big story pointing to a single character building toward a single climax that we as believers might know exactly what God is revealing and what God is saying and how God is saying that we might have the hope that the gospel has offered to us, that we might see that the gospel is not some newfangled idea, but that the gospel is well-documented, well-established, well-rooted, and long-promised. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 24? So we're going to start, I know we're going to start in Genesis to go to Revelation, then I said turn to Luke. But this morning what I want to do is I want to, I want to zone out and I want you to see where it is that I'm getting this. I don't want ever for you to think that this is just some kind of agenda that I'm trying to promote or some kind of idea that I have. What I want us to see is I want us to see that this is what Jesus understood to be the interpretive key to the word of God given by the Spirit. That Jesus understood the Bible to have a single storyline and a single main character working toward a single climax in all of history. And we see that here in Luke 24. So we're going to establish the principle here and then next Sunday we're going to get and move all the way back to Genesis 1. So Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin in verse 13. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13, it says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walked? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a, a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish one, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Look at this, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated this morning. You know, you can know, but not really know. You can know about and not really know. If you've been married for five minutes, five minutes into your marriage, you realize, you know, my fiance is not exactly who I thought they were. A <laughs> little bit different. I knew them, but now I know them, right? You can know that it hurts to be stung by a bee and have never been stung by a bee. But when you get stung by a Japanese hornet, you know, you really know what it means to be stung. You really know how it feels. You can really describe the pain that you've experienced. You can know that it's bad to be homeless and hungry. You, you can know that intellectually. You can understand that conceptually. But until you're laying under the stars cold and hungry, you don't really know you know about. And the problem that we see with the disciples in Luke 24 is the same thing that I see among many of us today. That we know about the Bible and we know about Jesus and we know about the gospel and we know about the hope, but we don't really know it. We don't really know the scriptures. We don't really know the hope. We don't really know Christ. We don't really know the gospel. So that's what I want us to talk about. I want us to see this morning from our text the difference between knowing and knowing about. 
The difference between knowing Christ in a way that is transformative, knowing the gospel and understanding the gospel in a way that shapes your whole worldview and shapes the way that you make decisions and shapes the ambitions that you have and the, and the gospel that we see more typically portrayed, a gospel that can get you into heaven but doesn't change anything else about you. The difference between knowing and knowing about. And the first thing that I want us to see is that to know is to believe. To know is to believe. So this is immediately, our, our text comes immediately after Jesus has been raised from the dead. So we've had the crucifixion and the resurrection and all of the disciples are still really in the dark. They're still reeling from what has happened on Friday night. And so here they are and they're on Sunday morning and they're in despair. They're hopeless. They're sad because up on that cross was not just their friend. It was not just their teacher. He was their hope. He was the one to which they had committed their lives. And so it tells us about two men that are headed down the seven-mile road to Emmaus. And as they head down the road to Emmaus, it describes them as being two disciples of Jesus. Maybe not within the inner circle of the eleven because they go and find the eleven. But, but two disciples who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, who believe that Jesus was the hope of the world. And they're going and it says that they're having a discussion. Now, the word for discussion here is, is almost, it can be translated actually as argument. It's, a, it's the idea of a ping pong kind of conversation, a, a back and forth, a, a very intense, a heated, a passionate exchange. One of those conversations where if you're, you're having it with someone, you're not really angry with them, you're not really upset with them, but you both kind of elevate your voices. And for somebody on the outside looking in, they might even think that you were angry or they would think that you were having an argument. And so they're going, and they're going back and forth about, about what has happened to Jesus and about Jesus' death and about Jesus' claims and about what, the, what their Sanhedrin had done to him and about what Rome had done to him. And, and here they are, just a few days later, they have hope that they're going to be delivered from their oppressor. And here they are on Sunday, and they have no hope, so that they appear sad. And Jesus comes upon them. And as Jesus comes upon them, he comes upon them. And Luke is certain to make sure that we know he comes upon them in the form of a stranger. That they don't recognize him. It may be that they had never really seen Jesus up close, only at a distance. Or it may be that his appearance is so different in his resurrected self that he was unrecognizable to those that had seen him before. It may be that he had a different form entirely. We don't exactly know. But whatever the case, he goes and they don't know who he is. And so he begins to, to engage them in conversation. And, and you have to wonder, why is it that Luke is so intent on us knowing that they didn't recognize Jesus? And it's because what Luke is wanting us to see is that this is a question of faith. This is a question of belief. What Luke is wanting us to see is Luke is setting us up on the front end to see whether or not these guys will have faith without seeing. If they will believe before their eyes are opened unto the truth. Because that is often the measure of faith in the scriptures. Do you have to see to believe? Or can you believe it because God has said it? Can you believe it because God has testified to it? Can you believe it because Jesus has promised you? And it's interesting Jesus is, Luke records Jesus speaking three different times in our passage. And all three times, verse 17, verse 19, verse 26, all three times Jesus responds, he responds and speaks with what? A question. He asks a question. And it's interesting when Jesus asks a question because Jesus has never asked a question that he doesn't know the answer to. You ever thought about that? 
Jesus isn't asking these questions because he needs information. Jesus isn't asking these questions because he doesn't know what they're talking about and he doesn't know these things that that everyone's discussing. And Jesus isn't asking these questions because he's unsure of what the prophets and Moses have said. Jesus is asking these questions not to increase his understanding, but to increase theirs. Jesus is asking questions so that he might draw out faith draw out unbelief, draw out their very character as men. This is why Jesus always asks questions. Jesus asks questions not so that he can understand, but so that we can understand, so that we can understand who we are, so that we can understand the nature and character of our faith, so that we can understand whether we are filled with confidence in Christ or we are filled with disbelief in Christ. And so he goes in an an appearance that they cannot recognize. He asks questions that he already knows the answers to. And Luke is saying with all of that, that in question here is matters of faith. In question here, are matters of belief. In question here are whether or not you can hold true to what Christ has said and who Christ is. And as Jesus begins to draw these things out from these two disciples with his questions, it's interesting how much information that they know, right? That Jesus does, in fact, draw out that they know a lot of stuff. That just in the answering of these questions, we learn that these, uh, these disciples knew that a Messiah was to come. They knew that the Messiah was to look like Jesus, according to the scriptures. They knew that Jesus was a man that operated with a power in deed and a power in speech that was otherworldly. That was clearly the anointing of God. They knew that Jesus had said that he must go and be offered up by the scribes and the priests and be crucified. And they knew that Jesus had said that three days later he would be raised from the dead. That they know a lot. And yet, though they know, they don't know. Though they know a lot about Jesus, it's clear that they don't know Jesus. And what becomes clear to me and what becomes clear to you is that you can know the truth and you can fail to believe it. That they had been filled with faith and now we see on their face in the expression of unbelief, sadness, sadness. If they had believed, they would not have been filled with sadness. They would have been filled with anticipation. They would have been filled with expectation. They would have been filled with hope. Now Jesus is today. Today is the day that he said he would raise. Today is the day that he said he would reunite with us. Today is the day. But instead, they speak of hope as though it's in the past tense. But we had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was the deliverer. We had hoped that he was the redeemer. We had hoped that he was the king. We had hoped that he would take us away from Rome. We had hoped that he would make our lives significant. We had hoped that he would establish us as being in the court of a king and rule over his people. We had hope, but now that hope is gone. The hope had died on Calvary. You see, fundamentally, Fundamentally, the, Bi- the Bible is not calling you to knowledge. Do you know that? It, it, you learn stuff when you read the Bible. But the Bible is not fundamentally calling you to a life of speculation. It's not calling you to, to increase your mind and, and increase your intellect. Fundamentally. And in contradiction to what mo- many of us see in, in postmodern spirituality, it's not calling you to blind faith. 
It's not calling you to, to, to go where you can't see all the time and more, to believe in somebody that's never been clearly revealed and never been clearly described and never given any evidence. No, no, fundamentally, the Bible is a call to an informed and substantial faith. The Bible is a call to an informed and substantial faith. These guys couldn't see, but their faith wasn't blind. These guys couldn't see, but they weren't being called to follow something that, that couldn't be known and couldn't be seen. In fact, what I believe most of us would say is that if God would spot us their experiences, if God would spot us their knowledge, if God would spot us what these guys knew and what these guys saw and what these guys experienced, we'd have a hard time not to believe. We'd have a hard time not to believe. And so on this day, they couldn't see Jesus. On this day, they couldn't recognize Jesus. But Jesus had already shown them so much of himself. And God had long ago, millennia before, made promises that came clearly to fruition and fulfillment in Christ. And all of this comes together to a faith that is informed, a faith that is substantial, a faith that isn't blind but has some meat to it. So Jesus is calling them calling them to see whether or not they would follow. See, that's why God spoke and revealed himself. Do you know that? God spoke, revealed himself, and had it recorded for us so that our faith wouldn't be blind. God spoke and recorded it for us so that we could see how he was working from generation to generation and so that now in a new generation, in the latest generation, in the, in the youngest generation, we might experience what all of the saints have long experienced. That we might know what all of the saints have long known. That, that we might experience God in a way that Abraham experienced God and Moses experienced God and Joseph experienced God. That we might know him and sing to him as David knew and sung to him. That we might know the wisdom that Solomon knew and lived by. That we might have the experiences of Elijah. That we might walk in the faithfulness of Isaiah. That he has revealed himself, he has recorded it through history, and he has kept himself on track, on story, online, from the beginning to show how every generation God keeps showing up. How every generation God is still there. How in every generation God is accomplishing the same things for the same kinds of people time and again. And if he's accomplished it then, he'll keep accomplishing it now. It's a faith that is informed. It is a faith that is substantial. And it is the evidence that Jesus didn't just appear. You realize that, right? See, the reason that we can't unhitch from the Old Testament, the reason that we must tether ourselves to the Old Testament scriptures is because Jesus is tethered to the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament is the proof, the evidence, the certainty that Jesus didn't just come out of clear blue sky, out of thin air, but Jesus was long expected, long present, and always coming. Always coming. And because we have the Old Testament that promised us that Jesus was always coming and Jesus has indeed come, we can be certain of the New Testament expectation that mirrors the Old Testament expectation that Jesus is going to come again. That the climax hasn't even been reached yet. That it isn't as good as it's yet going to be. The hope hasn't been fully substantiated yet. Hasn't been fully fulfilled and satisfied yet. But I wonder. I wonder if many of you are like the disciples from Luke 24 and you would speak of your hope in Jesus in the past tense. When you came to Jesus, you had hopes. 
You had hopes that life would become simpler. You had hopes that life would become more interesting. You had hopes that suffering would become more bearable or go away altogether. You had hopes that your marriage would look different. You had hopes that your job would be more meaningful. You had hopes that your parenting would would begin to be clearer and simpler. You had hopes, but now you look and your life, it's still just hard. It's still just hard. And, And if you were to be honest this morning, what you would say is the hope that I once had has faded away. The hope that I once had, I had hoped my kids would be different. I had hoped my marriage would be better. I had hoped that my life would be more significant. But not now. But not now. Now I've lived. In fact, when I began to follow after Jesus, I began to follow after Jesus and things got harder before they got better. Things became more troubling. It was as though the gates of hell made me their number one most wanted suspect. It was as if everything in my life began to fall apart. But the hope that the disciples find on the Emmaus Road is the same hope that you have for today. You see, it was the resurrection that was the reversal of despair, wasn't it? It was the resurrection that was the reversal of despair. It was the resurrection that took a past tense hope and brought it into the future. It was the resurrection that assured them that God isn't finished yet. I want you to think about this, that God had a plan for Jesus. God had a wonderful plan for Jesus. The Father laid out his will for the Son, and for the Son, a wonderful plan included the cross. How is it that a plan can be wonderful and include the cross? The cross isn't the period. The cross isn't the end. The cross isn't the end game. The cross is merely a a spot along the path to where he's headed. That's what the resurrection teaches us. That the storyline doesn't end at the cross. The storyline is accomplished at the cross. And then on the other side of the cross, it begins to ascend toward exaltation and glory. And for the life of the Christian, it's the same. It's the same. God has a plan for your life. God has established the things, the the days of your life before you were born. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He has prepared beforehand good works for you to do. But there is suffering in the plan. And there is hardship in the plan. And there is loneliness in the plan. And there is disappointment in the plan. And there is gut shot after gut shot after gut shot in the plan. But the plan is still wonderful because your suffering is not the end. Your suffering is not the landing spot. Your hardship is not where the period is placed. No, God says, I am going to take all things, all things, all things, and I'm going to use them for your good and my glory. It's the hope of the resurrection. That is, it's the hope of the gospel. So that not when you know about it, Not when you know about Jesus, but when you really know the gospel and you really understand the gospel, the gospel brings hope into hard parenting, wayward children, a a disengaged husband, a, 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 a search for meaning and significance, singleness that seems to have no end, depression that seems to have no bottom. Because you can see past Calvary to the other side. See, if you or to really know the gospel, you you were to understand it. You must understand it. That brings us to the second point, to know is to understand. You'll notice in verse 25 through 27, there's a rebuke by Jesus, right? There's a rebuke by Jesus. Jesus goes and, and he rebukes them 
And it's a twofold rebuke. First, he rebukes them because they don't believe, and then he rebukes them because they don't understand. He says, you're slow of heart to believe. When he says you're slow of heart to believe, this is what he's saying. Your heart is stupid. Your heart is simple. Your heart is thick-skulled. Your, your heart is hardened. Your heart is, is dulled to the truth. It's, it's ignorant to the truth. It's naive to the truth that your heart is slow to believe because your heart is, is too incapable, too, too, too veiled, too hardened to receive what is good and nutritious and substantial from the Father. And then he says what? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? Was it not necessary? In other words, out of all that you know of the scriptures, out of all that you've read, out of all that you've studied, out of, out of all that you've experienced, out of all that, that I have taught to you, was it not necessary? That is, do you not understand that I can't even offer you the hope that you need? I can't even offer to you what you're looking for. I can't even bring redemption and deliverance to you. I can't be your Messiah if I don't first go to the cross. Do you not see? Do you not understand? Do you not understand what's happening in the gospel? And so Jesus is driving home how profoundly they misunderstand the truth. And because they misunderstand the truth, their faith has been compromised. Their hope has been crushed. And so Jesus' response is really the key to all of this. Jesus' response to their unbelief, Jesus' response to their misunderstanding is the key to all that he's saying in Luke 24, and it's the key to everything that I want us to get over the foreseeable future as we go and connect into the big story. That what Jesus gives us is he gives us the interpretive key. The, the word uh, in verse 27 when he begins to interpret, that's the word we get our word hermeneutics from. And if you're a theological student, what you know is, is hermeneutics. That, that's interpretive principles. That's how to properly study the Bible, how to properly interpret the Bible. That Jesus says that I want to show you the key to understanding all of this, the key to maintaining hope, the key not just to knowing about, but really knowing. And the key is to understand that I'm in the middle of it all. The key is to understand that I'm in the middle of it all. It says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The things concerning himself. And so Jesus is responding by showing them that what we're going after full bore in this series is that the gospel is not a New Testament innovation. The gospel is an Old Testament expectation. The gospel is not a New Testament innovation, but an Old Testament expectation. That is Leviticus. Leviticus. I wonder how many Levitical scholars we have in the room this morning. Leviticus is a gospel-centered book in the same way that Romans is a gospel-centered book. That Deuteronomy is a gospel-centered book in the same way that the gospel of Matthew is a gospel-centered book. That from start to finish, all of it, all of it is about a single character, Jesus, pressing toward a single climax, the coming of the consummated kingdom overall. See, the problem that these guys have is not with the content of the Bible as they understand it. Do you notice that? It's not with the content of the Bible. And, and the problem that a lot of people have, in fact, when you have someone that disagrees, someone that is even opposing the faith, here's what they'll say. I don't really have a problem with the Bible. I, I don't really have a problem with Jesus as I understand him. That's a really learned way to say it, right? I don't have a problem with Jesus as I understand him. What I have a problem with is what you make him to be. What I have a problem with is what the church says that he is. 
And look, some, on, some court, on some cases, they're right. We don't, we, we don't do a good job of making Jesus look glorious. But what these guys had is they had a, 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 an off-target, off-center understanding of who Jesus was to be. They believed that in the here and the now, he was to be a triumphant reign, a triumphant king, a triumphant emperor for all of, of Israel, and that he was going to displace the Roman Empire as the leading superpower of all the world, that he was going to show that God was more glorious and that God was far greater. And so they were living in this false triumphalism in which they believed they would be in the center of a, of a great king's court and they would have their own stature elevated and their own families would be vindicated and their own names would be glorified as Jesus's name was to be glorified. That's how they understood the Bible and as they understood the Bible and as they understood the Messiah, they loved it. And so three times, three times in two verses, Jesus uses the word all. He uses the word all, all the prophets, all the scriptures, all of what Moses and Isaiah and all of them have said. Not what you want to him to say, not what you wished he would have said, not what you would have preferred for him to say, but all of what he has actually said. That if you will take all of it, you will understand that I am the fulfillment of every dot, every iota, every tittle. I am the fulfillment of all that has been said and all the scriptures have said have bore witness about me. You see, when we get the storyline of the Bible wrong, that's where our hope goes away. When we get the storyline, the timeline of the Bible wrong, that's when we make our hope in the past tense. When we believe that, like the disciples, we are to live in this false triumphalism in which now parenting is easy and marriage is simple and all of life is meaningful and, and glorious and, and pain-free and, and without sickness and without setback and without unbelief and without anxiety and without depression. When we believe life is all of that, we've gotten the storyline wrong. We've gotten the timeline wrong. Y'all, that's coming, but it hasn't come yet. That's coming, but it hasn't come yet. The king is going to reign, but he's not, he wasn't reigning yet. The king was about to ascend to the right hand of the father, but he had not ascended yet. First, first, there was the cross. First, there was the cry of dereliction. First, there was the blood. First, there was the death. First, there was the forsakenness. What hope? As Jesus crossed over the horizon and over the horizon, he saw up on that hill, the cross, what hope was there? What, what was it that prevented him from calling the angels of heaven as he said that he could do to rescue him from the cross and to smite the world? What hope was there? Jesus knew the storyline. Jesus knew the storyline. Though he would absorb the fullness of the wrath of God, though he would be forsaken on the cross by his father, Though he would be placed in the belly of the earth three days, Jesus knew the storyline and he knew it was not final, that his cross would not have the final say, that death would not have the final victory. So even in the shadow of the cross, he presses on in hope and resolve. And that's where understanding the gospel, knowing the gospel, rescues you. See, the gospel is a kingdom that's coming rather than a moment you experience. The gospel is a kingdom that's coming, not a moment that you experience. 
I think most of us have an understanding of, a, of the gospel as being the tag on at the end of the sermon. That we, have, we get, have all the life principles and then at the end the pastor says, well, and if you haven't done, received Jesus as a cross, none of this even matters, just be saved. And Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the dead, believe in that and you'll be delivered on this day. And that's all that we understand the gospel to believe. And y'all, that is the introduction to the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is the transformation of all creation into the reign of the lordship of Jesus Christ. It is the transformation of my life and your life it is the reshaping of our future to a destiny that is far greater than that which we deserve. It is to say that this is all temporary and this is all fading and we are nothing but pilgrims and sojourners for a little while. But there is a consummation coming. There is a far greater day to come when the kingdom that has been inaugurated will be fully established and the king that was, came and died on the cross will come and reign on high in the eastern sky as the it sounds. We've only seen the beginning of the story here. We haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. Some of you cried this morning. I don't know about what, but some of you cried this morning. One day you won't cry because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. Some of you woke up this morning and you hurt so badly you almost didn't make it here because your body is aching and it's given up on you. One day, your body's not going to hurt anymore. One day, your body's not going to ache anymore. One day, there will not be a single impediment between you and the king. You know why? The gospel. This morning, some of you, you argued with your husband, you argued with your wife the whole way here, and you got here, and you fake smiled all of us. One day, there will be no degree of separation between you and a single brother or sister in all of the kingdom because the kingdom is coming because of the gospel. You have to know the storyline. You have to understand the storyline. If you don't understand the storyline, your life will be filled with disappointment in Jesus. I wonder how many of you were so come to Jesus and everything will get better and everything will get simpler and you came to Jesus and you have found disappointment in Jesus. It's because that's not the gospel. The gospel is the promises are certain, but they are delayed. Will you believe right now? Will you believe today? Christian confidence. Christian confidence is built in the same confidence that Christ had as he pressed on toward Golgotha. Christian confidence is built upon gospel understanding. When you know where you are in the story and you know how the story ends, you can press on in confidence. You see, it was the gospel storyline that sustained Jesus. He realized that he was the son offered by his father, but not spared as Isaac in Genesis 22. He was the son betrayed, condemned, and exiled by those he loved to be ultimately exalted before them all as Joseph was in Genesis 45. He knew that he was the Passover lamb of Exodus 12 that allowed death to pass over the guilty. He recognized himself in Leviticus where all of the blood was shed of bulls and offered by priests for the atonement of sins. He was the high priest who could go behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies and offer himself as the one time for all time spotless and infinite lamb tearing the curtain in two. 
He was the forsaken of Psalm 22. He was the broken of Psalm 88. He was the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He was to be oppressed and he was to be afflicted, but he knew the storyline and he knew that wasn't the final word. He knew that wasn't a final defeat because he knew that he was the seed of Eve that would crush the serpent's head. He was the seed of Abraham that would bless every nation. He was the son of David that would sit upon the throne forever. He was the son of Psalm 2 would be presented with the nations. He was the child born in Isaiah 9 that would rule upon the mountain of the Lord in Isaiah 11. It was through him that nations would flow uphill until there was one song in all of heaven at his wedding feast. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Church, it was the storyline that sustained him. It was the storyline that brought him comfort and joy in the midst of obvious despair. And it is the storyline that will sustain you. It is the storyline that will hold your feet fastened to the earth when it feels as though you are being ripped from your father's hand. It is the storyline that will give you another day of perseverance in a marriage that isn't perfect, in a life that isn't easy, with children that aren't simple. It's, a, it's, a, it's the storyline that will allow you to engage with your boss who you really don't like, to love him well and to pray for him and to minister to him. It's the gospel. It's believing the gospel and understanding the gospel. Is it any wonder that when these disciples, by the end, by the time we get to verse 35, they have a different perspective. They've seen something new that they had never seen before. They knew about, but now, now they know. And they say that now our hearts have burned within us. That is when you, under, when you believe and when you understand, when you really know, to know is to love. To know is to love. It's interesting. They go into the disciples' home that night and the scene that plays out is virtually the exact same scene that plays out in the upper room when Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper. It's quoted basically verbatim from Luke chapter 22 here in Luke chapter 24. And Jesus is there and it says that he blessed the meal and he broke the bread and he began to pass out the bread. And as he began to pass out the bread, the disciples were astounded at their eyes and they were astounded how they had not seen, how they had not seen it before. But this, this in their living room, in their house was the Lord Jesus himself, the one they knew had shed his blood, the one that they knew had been crucified. And here he was in his resurrected form standing right in front of them. Henry Alford, the Bible commentator says that it may very well have been that as Jesus broke that bread as he did on the last supper with the disciples and he began to hand out the bread that they saw the nail scars in his hands and seeing the nail scars in his hands they were reminded they remembered what Christ had said and they remembered the, the promises that Christ had made and that's what we do at the Lord's table, isn't it? 
We gather as the imperfect, flawed children of God around a single table and we remember the scars of our Savior's hands and we remember the agony of our Savior's death and we remember the blood that was shed because without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. We remember that he is the once for all sacrifice, the priest who offers himself, who tears the veil and gives us access to the throne room of the Father. We remember that it was his back that receives the lashes, his back that receives the tears, his back that shed the blood that we might be right with him. That is, the Lord's Supper every single time is a call for us to really know him. It's a call, it's a call for us to really believe, to resuscitate our belief. It's a, it's a declaration of our understanding. It's an expression of our love. So this morning, we're not going to have an invitation. This morning, we're not going to have an invitation. The, the Lord's Supper is going to be our invitation. This morning, as a, as a church family, we're going to gather around the table. And I want you to remember all that Christ has said and all that Christ has done. And whatever it is in your life right now, and which is causing you to have trouble to believe, and whatever it is in your life right now that you're, you're having difficulty in reconciling in your understanding, wherever it is in your life where you see fractures of unbelief and, and lack of love for your Savior this morning, I want you to offer that up to Him in prayer. I want you to offer that up to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't want to know about you. I, want to, I don't want to know things that you've done. I want to know you. I want you to show me the fullness of yourself. And as you take the Lord's Supper, would you commit to one new way, one new way that you might grow in your knowledge of the Lord? Let's pray together. And as I pray, could I ask our, our deacons who are going to serve the Lord's Supper to come forward? Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at 9 o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.